Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt, presented as always by BetOnline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts. They're the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use that promo code PODCAST1, all caps. Receive that 50% sign-up bonus today on BetOnline.ag. And that music you hear, of course, my son, not Andrew, Sam Brandt. Uh, Love him so. Such a great musician. It's only going to get better with what you're going to be hearing from him. What a special podcast I have ahead. All the rage in the news this week is not from pro sports, although there is a pro element to it. It's from college sports. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, signs a new law, enacts it into law on LeBron, the shop, this week on HBO. It's the fair to play, it's something about a pay-to-play act, even though it has nothing to do with pay-to-play. It's about college athletes in California, and we're going to talk about other states, uh, being able to profit from name, image, and likeness, basically get endorsement deals using that image and likeness, which they haven't been able to do previously. And it will allow states to lift all, that state, at least California, and others to come, perhaps, to lift all restrictions on it. There's committees in play right now with the NCA, headed by Val Ackerman, chairman of the Big East, and we'll see where that goes. So my guests today, I thought, okay, I have this podcast. I can get whoever I want to talk about this. Two experts, one who is sponsor of the bill, Andy Schwartz, an economist, a uh, antitrust expert, especially in damages and sport economics. He is at HBL League, which he'll talk about. Andy Schwartz is on the podcast, along with Gabe Feldman, who is one of the preeminent scholars in the field of sports law. I'd like to think I'm in his category. He runs a program at Tulane, has been a forerunner to me running my program at Villanova. He is an expert, and he has written on this very topic in 2016, presented with the Knight Commission on intercollegiate athletics. So these are the two top people to talk about it. And they are coming up in this special edition of the Business of Sports podcast. And before I get to them, kind of my rant of the week, and because it is the topic of the week, I will talk about it in my own words before sharing the stage with my two special guests. I'm conflicted on this one. I certainly have been pro-player. I'm on the player side on most of these things. And I understand the idea of exploitation and the top players making hundreds, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars for these schools and the idea of exploitation. On the other hand, I put it in perspective. I work at a university, Villanova, and many schools are like this. We're 23, 24, 25 sports. Maybe one makes money. A lot of schools, zero make money. And you have to look at it in perspective. How many of these players are we really talking about in this idea of quote-unquote exploitation? People do focus on the Zion Williamson's, the Tua Tawagalovas, the so few at the top, the outliers. And I sort of look at it on a broader base and what does it do? So the question becomes, as you sit here and listen to this, sit there and listen to this, whatever definition of amateurism you have, do you want to put that at risk? And I know what we're talking about in college sports has become bastardized with such pro elements to it, but we have to decide what we want. And I, I guess I, I fear and maybe expect we're careening towards a world where there's the NCA sports, which are 99% of the sports, 
and the sports that people don't watch. And then there's the other part. And then there's 50 college football programs and 75 college basketball programs that are in another category. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's NCAA or something else. And I don't know what, if any, there will be on restrictions. And maybe we don't even call them student athletes at that level. We call them athletes. And if school is something they want to do, they can do that. If not, that's fine too. But on the more specific granular level, we're talking about one step, which is pay for endorsements, pay for name, image, and likeness. There is a case in the Ninth Circuit we reference in the podcast that talks about pay-for-play, taking all restrictions off college sports, and really making it an antitrust-free competitive market where you don't have any restrictions on what you can pay players, period, and just leave it up to the marketplace. And in a sense, this California bill, and as I said, others to come, maybe Florida, maybe New York, South Carolina, North Carolina, we'll see what happens. But it seems to be a hot topic politically. Now we even have a national bill potentially being introduced by Representative Anthony Gonzalez, former Ohio State football player and professional football players in Congress, talking about introducing that, but only after the NCA comes up with these recommendations, which we expect from this committee sometime this fall. So before we get to the guests, my point is, let's just try to take away the hyperbole about exploitation, about the death of college sports, about amateurism is shamateurism, and just figure things out. And what better way to do it with two people who are incredibly knowledgeable on the topic, talking about the California bill, sponsored by one of my guests, uh, Andy Schwartz and Gabe Feldman. So enjoy, without further ado, enjoy this deep dive into the name, image, likeness discussion of college sports. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Gabe, I'll start with you because a lot of people are thinking this is brand new. Oh my God, this is going to change the way we talk about college athletics and maybe the death knell and uh, the end of college sports as we know it. But you proposed a model like this way back in, will you tell me when, uh, where this is nothing new for you. So talk about the model you proposed and when was that with the Knight Commission? Well, it wasn't so way back. It was, it was 2016, so it was only three years ago. Okay. But this is certainly an okay. issue that people have been talking about for a long time. And Andy has been talking about this and, and creating expert reports for plaintiffs on these and similar issues. Um, and frankly, this is a smaller piece of the issue that people have been talking about for, for decades now, which is trying to either eliminate or reform amateurism to provide more economic rights for college athletes. And this would certainly provide an important economic right to be able to profit off of their name, image, and likeness or to prevent the schools from preventing them from profiting off of their name, image, and likeness. Um, so in that sense, it, it's not new, and it falls short certainly of a lot of the relief that plaintiffs have sought in court, but it would be an important step to narrowing amateurism, providing college athletes uh, with more rights. And the model that I proposed a few years ago, frankly, with Andy's help a little bit, um, yeah. was, was a system that would create what I think is a, or maintain a clear line between college and pro sports by allowing 
college athletes to be paid for use of their name, image, and likeness as long as it wasn't directly related to playing in the game. So it would allow for paying for autographs, for endorsement deals, for spokesperson deals, things like that, uh, but with particular guardrail to make sure that these were legitimate transactions. So happy to talk about that more in detail, but, but I agree with your point that this is certainly not a new issue. And Andy, you're like Gabe, you're on the front lines with this and have been for a long time. When you heard the news, first of all, that it was coming and then uh, Governor Newsom signing it, what was your immediate reaction? And, and do you see this as spreading far and wide with other states in the short time frame? Um, well, so uh, I just so the listeners know, I, I was the sponsor of this bill out here in California, so I had the, the good fortune of sort of having a front row seat in the in the process. I got to watch it go, and, and we had a pretty strong indication that Governor Newsom was going to sign it because he gave some feedback that altered the bill in early September that supposedly he said he would not sign it if it didn't get fixed. And then when that happened, we I mean, I think we all thought he, it would happen. It was, But what was interesting about the way he decided to publicly announce it the fact that he first went on on the daily show and then he went on lebron's the shop and in some sense tried to magnify the image told me something really important and the follow-on from other states says the same thing which is that politicians who are thinking about the next election maybe 2024 maybe 2028 think this is the right side of the issue to be on and that's new in the 20 years that i've been doing this stuff it maybe it's not new as of today but in, in t- 1999, when I first wrote an uh, academic article about the issue and I was talking about it with people, they would all look at me like I was crazy. Mm. Um, and now if you've got politicians with presidential aspirations thinking that this is going to help them in Iowa in 2028, I think that's that's a, a bad sign for the NCAA, a good sign for works groups like the HBL, but just generally for, for athletes. And, and again, you're being on the forefront of this bill and actually sponsoring the bill. I think we all sort of can see what we're talking about, name, image, likeness, and an athlete can go, you know, make appearances, can go make a deal with someone. And I guess I want you to talk about it beyond the, the, the Zions, beyond the, the superstar athlete. What was in your forefront of your mind when sponsoring this build beyond, you know, Zion deserves a shoe deal? I mean, talk about it as, as a bigger picture. Yeah, well, so the real big picture is that I think that every American has the economic right to go into the marketplace and and find his or her value and not have a collusive organization essentially make a condition of participation in athletics that you give up that right. And and that's true whether you're going to make nothing, whether you're going to make 10 cents or $10 million. And, and so that was really – that's the principle but I think everybody who is saying no one except for Zion is going to make money needs to recognize that one of the things that the, the uh, rule of the NCAA has against athletes getting paid for the name, image, and likeness is the reason that the video games went away. So in the video game world, that's a group license, generally speaking. Now, you might give an individual license to the guy who's on the cover of the game, and he might get paid a lot for that. But in the NFL, pretty much everybody on a roster is getting – something like $8,000 from, from the, the video game market and similarly in the NBA. And, and those, I know that those are collectively bargained where they have it so that it's six or more or, or three or more right. athletes in a, in a deal, but there is no way that a, 
a video game market maker is going to want to sign up 85 football players instead and pay them pay them individually, that maker is going to want to do a group license. And group licensing organizations will either come up within the NCAA or outside of the NCAA during the O'Bannon case. There was a group um, involved with CSAC, which is a, a music licensing group that was ready and willing to step in and become a sort of a group licensing group for, for athletes. I'm sure that can be uh, revived. And and so trading cards, if, if you want to have uh, trading cards for the Oklahoma football team, you're not going to only want to have three guys that you know, people want to get the whole set. And um, and so there is room in this market for that. The other thing is, is that there are a lot of Olympic sport athletes and on the women's side in particular where, yeah, only the stars are going to get money, but right now those stars get nothing. It's not like, oh, they should just wait two years for their payday. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's a nascent sort of professional swim league out there, but Katie Ledecky lost a significant amount of money, and, and uh, Missy Franklin, prior to her, lost pretty much all of her money when she could have been uh, doing commercials uh, during her time at Cal. Um, and And so... Like going back to that initial point, which is that it's kind of like I don't, I personally don't think it matters that some people will do better than others under this. Right now, none of them are doing well. They're all of all of the values being extracted by the NCAA uh, system. The pie is actually smaller because there are there are things like jerseys that that are being sold that are suboptimal because people want the name on the back, but because the NCAA is afraid of litigation, they pulled the names off. And mm-hmm. and so we're in a situation where basically they're shrinking the pie just to make sure they get 100% of the smaller pie. And I want to grow the pie, and I want everyone to have their full value, whether, whatever that value. And I'll just, I'll just add that, that I think we don't know how big or, or how lucrative the market is because there hasn't been a market, because the NCAA rules don't allow the market to exist. But if you want a sense of what a market might look like for some of these yeah. lesser-known college athletes, I think a great example is this and I'm not sponsoring this, I'm not promoting this, but that website Cameo, um, where you can go and and pay for social media messages from top celebrities to people that many people have never even heard of before. And I think a great example of this is Kyle Guy. I remember Kyle Guy from UVA in the Final Four mm-hmm. last year. And, and when he was at college, he was not allowed to profit off of his name, image, and likeness. And now he's on Cameo charging $80 per social media message. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. If I remember right, he's in the Kiwi. Right. I think, yeah, I think he's on listed as being the Sacramento Kings. But, yeah, I mean, he, he's – no one would think, even when Kyle Guy was playing at UVA, people weren't saying, oh, this is only going to help the Kyle Guys of the world. And people were saying this is going to help the Zions of the world. But there's – we don't know. There are lots of people, particularly in small towns, if you're in Charlottesville or wherever it might be, where these are the superstars. These, these are your heroes. And as we know, what, what's particularly – cruel about the name, image, and likeness restrictions is that for many of these athletes, particularly at the Olympic sports, um, not only is this the time where their name, image, and likeness will be most valuable, it might be the only time it's valuable. That in five or ten years, it, it, it no longer has any value. So we're not only restricting their rights, we're restricting their rights the only time when their rights may have any value at all. Right, right. So the, the oh, well, you can, you can cash in as soon as you're done uh, line is, is a cruel sort of ho- like a, tantal, a tantalizing, like, yeah, just wait, just wait until you bend over, drink the water, and oh, the water went down. Um, I think it's important to also to recognize the point about the, the pie being bigger. See, uh, during the O'Bannon case, this came out, so this is public, 
CLC, which is now ING College, although maybe they merged with somebody else at this point, I guess Learfield, um, but the organization that specializes in collegiate licensing did an analysis in 2004, a long mm-hmm. time ago in terms of money, money, and they found that basically $750 million of value was being left on the table um, at the time because of the failure to essentially fully commercialize name, image, and likeness. Like instead of just using the number on the back of the jersey, if you guys put the name on the back of the jersey, instead of just using sort of Hmm. vaguely disguised Ed O'Bannon, if you called him Ed O'Bannon in the video, if you did trading cards, and um, basically they were begging the NCAA to change the rules because they wanted to make more money, and, you know, of course they decided that, like, they just didn't want to have to share, and they would would spike the market rather than, than share it. Yeah, and it's either that a lot of athletes have some value in their name, image, and likeness, not necessarily at the Zion level, but that a lot of them do and they're not allowed to profit off of it, in which case we are harming a lot of athletes or not a lot of athletes have a lot of value or much value at all, in which case what's, what's the big deal that if we, we lose some of the restrictions? <laughs> Why is it going to have such a significant change? So it's, it, it, either way, I, I'm not sure there's a, a particularly compelling argument to keep the restrictions in place. And we can talk more about why they've been in place and what the arguments are for or against it, but just in terms of practically who's going to benefit and how much are they going to get. Again, it's either a lot or it's a little, but if it's a lot, then we should let them benefit. If it's a little, then again, just let it happen. Yeah, and I would argue that the the powers that be have this important vested interest in preventing that experiment from happening is what it would reveal. Yeah, and there's so much to unpack here. And again, I'm going to ask some questions. I don't want to be accused, I guess, if that's too strong a word, of taking that position. But here's the pushback questions I want to ask both of you about these things. Number one, where's the money going to come from? Now, I know we're going to say, well, you know, there's the, 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 the business doing the autograph session, the business doing the promotion, the shoe company, the endorsement company. Is it going to be kind of a bottomless pit from that end, as opposed to money coming, taking away from the NCA, taking away from the schools? Because I get the argument, yeah, you know, you can pay Saban $11 million and you can pay Krzyzewski $12 million. But to me, those are the outliers. Uh, You know, Gabe and I work at universities where, I don't know, 25 sports? And I don't know if any on Gabe's campus, maybe one on our campus makes money. So uh, sort of the money argument. And is the is what we're envisioning well, we, we money. Pay our sports law, we pay our sports law director $10 million a year. So yeah, there's where that, the money goes in Tulane. kind of complicates it. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. but are we talking about money coming from the schools here? Or is it all sort of outside endorsement money? And if it is coming from the schools, is it necessary? Do, how, how do we know it's not going to take away from the other parts of the athletic department that are losing money? Andy? You want me to go first? Go, go ahead, sure. Andy. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, athlete, athletic departments don't lose money. And I think this is an important thing. They spend money. They choose on their own that the value that the athletic program brings to the university as a whole is worth, in the case of schools that don't, don't have a, a surplus, is worth investing in money. It's the exact same calculus 
that schools get engaged in and decide whether or not they want to have a classics department. Not every college has a classics department. Some okay. when they decide that classics makes zero money. There aren't government grants for classics, but that in order for us to have a certain level of prestige, we're going to have some guys who teach ancient Greek. And, um, and they pay the people in the department, even though that department, quote-unquote, loses money. Because it doesn't lose money. It spends money that is given by the university for a specific mission-aligned purpose. Now, if you're saying that, those, that your school or any of the schools that are doing that, sh- that shouldn't be their mission or that they're overspending, that's like a bad management question on, your, on the school's end. But, but I think it's, this is really important that people recognize that when you say losing money, you sort of imply that the goal, that, that like as if they didn't know that like they have a budget. They're like, please spend $30 million more than you make. We want you to do that. And, and they do. Of course, it's a nonprofit. They spend every dollar that they're given. Every department does that. So that's the mm-hmm. first thing. The second thing is, is, is that I think as an economist that a portion right now of the revenue coming into schools for sponsorships, as an example, is really athlete name, image, and likeness um, revenue. But the schools, by denying the athletes to get it and essentially creating a monopoly for themselves, they they abscond with that money by by siphoning it in. So uh, uh, the the official Ford dealer in Tuscaloosa, the Tuscaloosa Ford dealer, that's the official Ford dealer of Alabama, is probably paying Alabama more than they would pay if they could have the alternative of being the official summertime Ford dealer of Tuatangalua. And, um, and so I do, so, so the bill is specifically, it, first of all, it doesn't mandate anything. The only thing it says is you can't strip somebody of their eligibility or their scholarship if they engage in commerce of this sort. But, um, so schools don't have to pay. Um, mm-hmm. and, but if there's a, a, a sponsor out there, who can choose right now if he really wants to be associated with LSU football, he only has one person he can buy it from, one, one entity, which is LSU. And, and the ability to expand that is going to, you know, do the sort of things that, that our antitrust laws are designed to do that we think is good is to ex- expand the number of sellers. And the price will probably go down some, but, and, and, and it'll spread out. So, yes, schools will lose money, but it's not their money. Schools are getting the benefit of what I think is an illegal monopoly, but even if it's illegal of a monopoly and a state law like this essentially ends that monopoly. And, you know, that's, that's good, not bad. It, uh, yes. If you're the, if you are a monopolist, competition feels like Satan, but, but, um, but it's not, it's, it's, it's the, the better angels of, of our economic system. And I'll just give a slightly different perspective from the proposal I made to the to the Knight Commission and I presented this to others in the NCAA, um, my proposal would uh, accept at face value the fear that the payments coming from the schools directly to the athletes um, would cause budget issues. Again, Andy makes a compelling argument that it wouldn't, um, but let's just assume for sake of argument that it would, that it mm-hmm. might lead to some recruiting abuses, that it might lead to some damage to the overall amateurism model. Again, uh, there's lots of arguments as to why that might not be the case, but assuming that is the case, uh, that my proposal would be that the payments can only come from third parties, that the schools are not paying a cent for name, image, and likeness. Uh, and therefore, you, you avoid the, the budget issues. You avoid the question of are, this, are the programs losing or making money. You avoid the issue of, well, is it taking money 
from the, the swim team or from the facilities that benefit all of the students instead of or so all the student athletes instead of just one or two of the students. Um, and it, it's just coming from third parties. Now, might some of that third party money otherwise have gone to the school? So might a, a booster decide they want to just give money directly to the college athlete to make them their spokesperson rather than being the official car of LSU football? Potentially. So there might be some money diverted to the student athlete, but uh, overall this would not impact, have a significant impact, I don't think, on the, on the school's budget, budget, and also because it's coming from a third party and not from the school, I don't think it really has any significant or any Title IX implications. Yeah, I, I, as far as I'm going to leave the legal, legal analysis to Gabe, but the, my understanding is, is that definitely the less the school is involved, the less likely it is that Title IX applies. I, I might argue that we might want to have Title IX apply to the extent to which a school there's a there's a world in which the model works very differently than what we're talking about, which is instead of saying to athletes, you are free agents, and as long as you don't touch us, we won't touch you. There's another one where as part of the recruiting process, the school actually buys those NIL rights for something like a signing bonus and a percentage. Um, we, we own your – so this gives the school the ability to choose who the athlete sponsors um, to make sure there's no conflicts. It gives the uh, and to avoid things like in California, somebody raised the, the horrible fear that somebody might um, might do an endorsement for a cannabis club because because marijuana is legal in the United States and how 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 could we possibly have that? And the California legislators looked at like what what it's illegal. Um, but this idea that there's something unsavory to associate with your brand by making this purchase in advance and then sharing the royalties, I think that would bring it closer. And Gabe can say whether he agrees. To being, to being under Title IX, but I don't think that's necessarily bad. That would essentially um, turn demand for, in, in basketball and football anyway, a primarily male, demand for male athlete images and use it in the same way that Title IX was intended to sort of level things out. It would lower the price that, a, that male athletes would get and it would raise the price that, that women athletes would get for, for that, the, the, the aggregate product. That's a policy decision. We can decide right. about that, but if I think that when NCAA schools are saying, on the one hand, we highly value Title IX and we think it's really important, another time if they're trying to say, yeah, but keep this outside so we don't have to deal with Title IX, I think that they're sort of abandoning Title IX. What about yeah, I mean, I, I, for... I agree with Go the ahead. general point that the, ahead, the more you tie the institutions into it, whether it's through a, a purchase of the NIL rights in whole or just through a group licensing deal. So yes. if there is a group licensing deal, um, but the athletes also have the right, as they do in the pro leagues, to negotiate individual deals. Um, then I think the group licensing aspect would certainly raise, or more likely to raise, Title IX implications. And I agree with Andy. I think that that could be a good thing. I think it's a great thing that we would require these deals to include an equitable distribution of money um, for, between men and women. You know, there's the theory and the practice. So I guess when you have opened up restrictions or loosened restrictions, there's always the potential for abuse. And I'm sort of curious if you guys even see this as abuse, where it becomes an arms race, which people can say it already is, where the top schools going after the top players will offer above board athlete compensation packages, where, you know, in your time here at pick a school, you'll make $500,000 of marketing income. Uh, and that will be, in essence, guaranteed and those kind of things. And, you know, then it'll become 
what about my family? What about my brother? My cousin wants to do something. You know, I guess, again, people can say that goes on now. But what do you say to these sort of potential recruiting arms races and opened up with, with, with allowing this? Andy? Well, in these so-called nightmare scenarios, every dollar that somebody throws out there and says, this is what's going to happen, in my mind, they're measuring the current level of exploitation in the system. And when I define exploitation, I mean the gap between your market rate and what you get. doesn't matter. You can be... You can be a rookie, uh, rookie contract running back in the NFL and making good money, and you are being economically exploited because you're worth more than that. Now, that's the basis. That's through a collective bargaining act, and so we've, we've argued mm-hmm. that that's fine, and, and that's a policy question. But here, if what you're saying is that the simple lack of a rule, the simple NCA rule that prevents that scenario from happening is keeping $500,000 out of somebody in somebody's family's pocket. Like that's a that's a classic example of economic exploitation. In terms of the okay, we'll find yeah, but you know, isn't a little exploitation worth it if we can prevent horrible things like this happening? I just don't see those as horrible. There are there's a family, and if it's if they are if they are the median um, starting player in FBS football or D1 uh, uh, F Power Five and and, and adjacent basketball. They are probably on a, from a family that's poor enough to qualify for Pell Grants. Why, why would we uh, want to discourage that family from suddenly being able to rise out of poverty? I don't get it. I'm not saying that the athlete is held intentionally poor at school, but he's being kept away from money that would be maybe generational, if not generational, at least, at least de- a decade improvement in his whole family's uh, position. Well, I guess the, so the my, argument. Again, my, the oh, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, Gabe. Go ahead, Gabe. No, go ahead, Andrew. I well, guess I the argument say that really. I, I'll, again, I'll offer a slightly different perspective on this, and, and I, I'm going to offer it from the perspective of let's assume, for the sake of argument, I know Andy does not like to assume this for the sake of argument, but let's assume that amateurism in some way, shape, or form is a legitimate goal of the NCAA right. and that it does make the product more popular and that they do need certain rules in place to protect it and maintain amateurs. And let's say that at the core of that, they need to prevent athletes from being paid directly to play. Right? Let's just assume that for sake of argument. And that we want to allow the college athletes to be paid for their name, image, and likeness for the stuff they do off of the field or off of the court. And so the question I think you're asking, Andrew, is how do we allow the name, image, and likeness payment without having it spill over to become payment to play or payment to recruit that if you go to Auburn, you get guaranteed this $500,000 deal. Um, and and I think that's a legitimate concern if we want to maintain the broader amateurism model, if we don't, then it's not a legitimate concern because why do we want to preserve a system we think is wrong, but assuming we want to preserve that system, how do we protect it while also giving the athletes more economic rights to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. And I think there would have to be some guardrails in place to make sure these are legitimate transactions. I know that people sort of scoff at the idea that this can happen and that all this is going to lead to is, is now payments maybe above the table, but maybe still under the table to just allow Alabama and Auburn to keep paying more and more money to get all the, the best football players. Um, but as you said, that's already happening. So maybe this would just lead from a shift of money from – whoever is getting the money, whether it's the coach or the administrator or the facility, to the athlete. Um, But I also think you can draw the comparison to the professional sports leagues. 
And it's obviously a very different situation because, as Andy mentioned, those rules are the products of collective bargaining. And so those rules are protected under antitrust law because they are in a collective bargaining agreement. Ironically, the NCAA and member institutions do not want the athletes to form unions. If they did and they collectively bargained these rules, they would be protected under antitrust law. But because they're not, they are subject to antitrust law. But in the NBA, for example, you have a salary cap, but you also have individual athletes who make lots of money off of endorsements. And there are rules in place to make sure that the salary cap is not being circumvented by saying, if you come to play in L.A., not only do you get your salary, but we'll also guarantee you $25 million in endorsement deals. And maybe that happens with a nod and a wink, or maybe there's an understanding, but we don't say that that's destroyed the salary cap. And we don't say that's destroyed whatever competitive balance we have in our professional sports leagues. I think you would look for the same thing here. How do we maintain that bright line amateurism rule, which I know makes Andy shudder, um, but also allow them to make this money off of the field? Well, I think yeah, we so need I, to. I, I, I need to follow up there, Andy. I, I just want to echo what Gabe said because I was going there. Amateurism, however we define it, is something the NCAA is trying to achieve, and I know people will scoff at that. People will roll their eyes at that. But if we want a pro sports model, we can do that. But then, you know, what happens to the 99% of college sports that aren't going to draw that kind of money from, from whatever, from endorsements, from boosters, from packages? And, and I guess sort of what I'm asking is, are we headed towards this two-tiered system where we have the NCAA and amateurism for every sport but the top programs of college football and college basketball, which are in some other form of semi-pro sports. I'll just, I'll just throw that out there and let you answer, Andy. Well, that's a great segue into what the Historical Basketball League is trying to do, because we're trying to do exactly that. Um, we want to create professional college basketball. We're going to pay our athletes between fifty dollars and $150,000 a year. They will own their own sneaker rights. There will be a group licensing deal that they share with the league. They will um, get a five-year scholarship that's guaranteed, even if they not end up being not good enough quality for the league in terms of their basketball play. And we want to suck all of the best talent out of the NCAA because they're worth it um, and because they're on, they're exploited. And we want to provide that alternative through competition because, in part, because all of the efforts to use the legal system and the legislative system and, and the unionization system to, to date, maybe SB 206 is an exception, but have not succeeded. Um, because, um, like, I personally don't think that it is the duty of an 18-year-old boy, man, I guess, 17-year-old boy, 18-year-old man, to sponsor a men's lacrosse team because he's good at basketball without his consent, even, in terms of, like, how that money is extracted. And... I look at Division Two. I see thriving lacrosse programs, despite mm-hmm. the fact they have no basketball or football revenue, because mm-hmm. universities think that having these other sports are worth spending their own money. And so if the idea is that Duke will stop having um, women swimming if they can't take the bulk of Zion's worth, then what they're saying is we'll only pay for it if we use Zion's money to pay for it. And, and I don't think that's true. I, I think that Major universities like well-rounded programs and will spend on it, even if they have to spend their own money. And I, I, I definitely think, like, if the reason that we're going to cap um, football and basketball pay is because that's the only reason 
we will, we will pay for these other sports. That's a horrible reason, I think. I guess the question is, you talk about HBL, we've mentioned G League, and this is something I may get some pushback on. I want to hear it. How much of these athletes' worth is due to the front of their jersey? And and I and I ask it because, you know, we did mention G League, and I don't know what that is. I've heard a hundred thousand dollars. So maybe a couple athletes have gone that way or gone overseas. But whether it's Zion or R.J. Barrett or whoever it is, they see value in going to these programs where they're not paid, as opposed to going somewhere they make a hundred thousand uh, dollars. So. I guess what we're trying, I'm trying to figure out is how much value these NIL profit is from the name on the front of the jersey, and in your opinion, should that matter? Okay, so um, a few things. Um, you know, the way monopoly power works is that monopolists don't pick a price to sell something that's so high or an offer price that's so low that everybody opts out. They try to find the price, the, in the case of a buyer, like, like, like colleges, the absolute lowest price that is still better than sitting at home. And that is why the NCAA makes all of the schools agree collectively to the same price. Because if, there were, if each conference had its own rule, there would be competition and we'd see things bid up. So the, mm-hmm. ar- the argument that like, no one put a gun to their head, they chose to do this, I think it, it's important to think about market power because – Whenever we have a price-fixing case in, in the United States and somebody like buys a, a television that was price-fixed, the defendant can't say, like, we didn't make you buy a TV. That was a choice. You could have gone without a TV. Um, the antitrust laws say, no, no, that's the whole point, is that you use your market power to extract more than you, were, that you deserved in the competitive process, not by forcing them out. And, in fact, the people who don't buy usually don't even have legal standing to sue. Um, it's only the people who said, okay, fine, I'll acquiesce to your system who can sue for damages. So that, that's important. And I think people recognize this. the existence of a, a European television market does not allow American pr- television price fixing. And so similarly, the fact that now five guys from the class of 2020, uh, sorry, 2019 are going to go play down in Australia, that by itself, five guys is not enough to say the NCAA doesn't have market power. And it doesn't, for example, void the, the very recent Austin Jenkins decision which says that the NCA has monopoly power. Monopoly is not literally every single, but like the vast, vast, vast majority. Okay, so that, that's one thing. But then um, joint, joint intellectual property is really, really common. I watched a, a Dak Prescott chunky soup ad, mm-hmm. and he is wearing his Cowboys logo in it. So I'm assuming that, that the you know, NFL properties was involved. But I guarantee you that he that Dak is worth more to Campbell Soup with that uniform on than not, and he he himself benefits from that. There's the value of the Cowboys brand. There's the value of Dak's brand. Together, that brand is worth more. And in regular markets, that surplus gets split. So the idea that first of all, Zion Williamson actually had more YouTube views than the entire Duke basketball YouTube channel in the year before he went to Duke. So he had a brand. But even if he didn't, even if if Duke gave him all of his value, that's kind of what, like, like Andrew, you and I, like some of our brand is Stanford, right? And, mm-hmm. and um, we take that with us. It's human capital. And 
if I, if, if somebody is able to market themselves as themselves and part of their identity is the association with another positive brand in any other endeavor that ends up that money, some, or sometimes all of that money sticks to the individual. So that's what markets are for is sorting that out. Right. And we don't want to ask the question the other way of, of how much is the front of the Jersey worth because of the guys who played in that Jersey. And you think about the school that maybe doesn't have the brand name of a, of a Duke or a Stanford, um, but they become well-known because of a, a great player. And all of a sudden, more people are applying to that school, more people are buying those jerseys, and we don't say, well, how much of that was because of the athlete and not because of the name, the name of the school? So yeah, we only have to ask it in, in the reverse way. Right. Ima- imagine if Duke just held tryouts at the beginning of the year without recruiting and just put five real Duke students out there, how quickly the brand would be devalued. Well, I, I also will say there's college football teams that we watch uh, every Saturday where maybe, again, you sort of brought up this question in the, in the reverse, maybe the average fan or even the, the, the more than average fan knows two or three players on that team, right? So I guess if you're going to make that point, people watch LSU football, people watch Georgia football, people watch Florida football, maybe not knowing more than two or three players. Have so, you ever looked at any of the recruiting uh, websites? Well, yeah, they're the diehards. I get it. But we're, we're talking about, the, you know, what drives these products is the mass, the mass appeal, right? Well, I mean, I guess, I, I guess I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is that you are asking this question when we could find out really easily. Like, if we open up the market, and you're right, like Gabe said, hardly anyone's going to get any money. And so it doesn't seem like a big deal. To me, it is a big deal because they're simply denied the right to find out. The, the simple right. fact of we're not even going to let you find out you're worthless is a denial of a right, an economic right. But, um, but I, I, think you're wrong. I think you're wrong, but I'm, I'm willing to have a market test prove me wrong. I, I note very, very cynically that, and not you, but, but pro-amateurism people don't want to see that test. And if I'm willing to see the test and they aren't willing to see the test, I think we both have a, a hunch what the test will show. No, I get the test. Uh, my point on college football is if I'm looking at a TV guide and I see, okay, at, at 3.30 I could watch – uh, nothing against these schools, but I could watch, I don't know, Towson against Richmond, or I could watch uh, LSU against South Carolina. I, I don't know a player on any of those four teams, but right. I would watch the latter because of brand name. Right. Right. Because you know that the, the LSU brand connotes we recruit great athletes every year, so this is going to be a good game. But let me, let me give you a, 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 not a just a right. hypothetical, but a reality. In 1950s, you know who the, the dominant television uh, football team was in terms of people watching TV? It's in your town. Can I answer? Yes, you can answer, Gabe. Penn. Right. Penn was the absolute most watched television program, a tele- football team on television. And right. then soon thereafter, the Ivy League chose to de-emphasize its recruiting 
and scale back on, on, on the quality of the players they got. And that's why nobody wants to watch Penn anymore because their brand weakens and their brand weakens mm-hmm. because, you know, brand, we all know what brands are. Brands are signals of quality and Penn intentionally. And, and you can, I, I mean, I think it's admirable university of Chicago, admirable, but from a branding perspective, horrible. If your brand is trying to be strong at football. And, and so I guarantee you that if LSU had 10 down years, Five down years, even we can look at programs. Look at look at Stanford. Stanford mm-hmm. attendance compared to the Andrew Luck years, mm-hmm. um, like that place is empty. Look at uh, Mike Montgomery's basketball teams when we were getting NBA players consistently, and and the current Stanford basketball where Maples, they should call it like Maples Cavern um, mm-hmm. instead of Pavilion because it was, it was empty and you can hear the water dripping off of the the um, stalagmites. It's um, the brand value of an organization degrades if it doesn't constantly feed itself with a com- that level of talent. And so, yes, you, you are right that because of the, the short-termness of college, that, the, that at any given moment, perhaps you can say, oh, look, the, the aggregated past brand value of LSU versus the current brand value of the athletes it's way weighted in favor of LSU. And so that if, um, you know, when Leonard, Leonard Fournette was there, most of his value was LSU. And, um, and that's probably true, but, but in aggregate over time, it's just a sum total of a little bit of school and a lot, a lot, a lot of great athletes. And it can be great if you don't pay for it. And that's why if schools could just want to pay, I know Gabe, Gabe asked me to assume that they can't, but if they could, they would because, that's that's how they keep that brand value. Yeah, you don't have to assume that forever. That was just for that five <laughs> minutes I was talking. But but I also I, I think to to points you both made, this is an opportunity to grow the pie. I mean, you, you can you can both be right, Andrew. That that part of the value or significant part of the value for the athlete comes from their association with the school or the fact that they have LSU or whatever is on the, on the front of the jersey. But they add some value from the name they have on the back or from their skill level. But if you allow them to do a marketing deal together, then you're going to have to be able to get a lot more value than you're getting right now where right. You, you can't do it at all. And particularly if they're then going to share that revenue, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a rare organization that is cutting off potential new sources of revenue uh, under the argument that cutting it off is how they define their product. Yeah. And allow might... this additional source of revenue, then they destroy what the product is. The, the, the video game, uh, natural experiment that we saw play out in real time is a good one, which is that once right. the courts had determined that if athletes were in the game, they had to be paid first the NCAA and then the conference withdrew the rights to use their logos because rather than um, have a vibrant market that they got some of the money, they would rather have no one get the game and people blame that O'Bannon, but it O'Bannon was ready to go. Everyone was ready to go. It was the schools and the NCAA and the conferences that chose to kill that market because they would rather have a small hundred percent of a smaller pie. And it, it, it's, there was a this discussion that goes on. Well, what, where is the true value and video games is a good way to discuss it. Would you rather have 
a college football game that had all the marks and logos of the schools in the NCAA, but none of the players, or a game that had just the player names, but none of the marks and logos. And that different people give different answers. I don't really, you know, that's not really the point, but I think the point is that it's going to be more valuable to have it together. Um, I don't think anybody right. would question that it's more valuable to have both in it. And what's least valuable is to have none in it. You, you guys probably remember from back in the day, the, the old video games, Double Dribble, where you had the Boston Frogs instead of the Boston Celtics because they had no player names, and that was the best we got. And all of a sudden, they got the rights to use the names and the logos, and it totally transformed what video games are and sports video games are. Um, so I, I think it's okay to concede that the value is, is shared, that, that they both contribute, and let's just make sure that the athletes are able to recoup some of that value. Yeah, and, and that, you know, in, in pro sports, that's often done through collective bargaining. In, in other places, like in Europe, it's done individually. Um, markets are really, you know, negotiations are the normal way we do this, not by sort of like a legislative or, in NCAA's case, a, a faux legislative fiat. Yeah. And listen, uh, again, I'm posing questions for discussion, and uh, I'm probably more more on your side than I'm acting because I want to sort of I don't want us to sort of be preaching to the choir all e- to each other and sort of uh, one sided. But the other point that sort of resonates with me, uh, having been in the agent business so long, uh, it just it just rings in my ears a lot. A uh, conversation I had with a big time agent recently who just told me, he's like, Andrew, when we get to these guys, they're all set up. I'm like, what do you mean? By the time we get to them, and we can assume, I don't know, junior year, they're set up. And I'm like, what do you mean? By the time we get to them, they're set up. (laughs) And again, what do you mean? You know, set up. Monthly payments, cars, family. And of course, you know, I'm like, what? You know, but but then I'm like, okay, I get it. So (laughs) when I hear about, okay, no, now the arms race and now we're going to see these pitches and athlete compensation packages to the top players sort of rings in my ears what this big time agent said to me about what happens. Uh, Thoughts on that? Um, White markets are always better than black markets in terms of avoiding uh, abilities to hold somebody over a barrel, to underpay them, to make a deal and then not live up to it because you can't enforce a black market contract. Like if it's simply a matter of taking the identical market and bringing it above board, that in itself is a benefit. Taxes will get paid. Um, you know, we should be in favor of that. But also, okay. I think that. Um, I also, I think that it, in almost certainly there are people because they do want to follow the rules who are turning down those offers, not because they're not worth it, but because they want to stay clean, who would benefit right. from being allowed to do it above board. Yeah. I, I, I would just add a couple of things. <clears throat> One is just to, to echo Andy. I mean, the idea that sunshine is the best disinfectant that if we legalize this and regulate it, then it will be, um, it'll operate more smoothly and we can do a better job of actually protecting the college athletes and the institutions. Uh, the other is that all that stuff that you said happened does not happen to Tulane, just for the record. And yeah, it shows. The, yeah. <laughs> hey, watch our football team. We're on the rise. We're on the that, that was, a, that was a, that, that that one cool uh, uh, end of the game. <laughs> and the, the third um, is that 
I think there's a the the A word for a long time in college sports was the, the one word you couldn't mention was the agent that we were so terrified of introducing agents to college athletes that it was going to destroy mm-hmm. everything. Right, Andy, you, Andrew, you you lived this from your your time as being an agent and understood mm-hmm. the sort of reputation broadly of agents, but specifically with respect to college sports and and some abuses that happened. And we obviously need to protect college athletes from unscrupulous agents. But I also think we need to recognize that college athletes need to have sophisticated, effective representation as well, particularly if we're going to give them economic rights. Um, otherwise, they're going to end up being abused. Yeah. And so I, I think we, we need to figure out a way, and the Rights Commission, although the Rights Commission was criticized for not being aggressive enough, one of their more aggressive proposals was to allow um, for greater use of agents. Uh, yeah. At an earlier point for for college athletes, and, and I think that can be a good thing. It's just there there's been such a, a stigma and a negative association with agents that you mention it, it, it it's it's just it, it terrifies people who have been involved with college athletics for a long time. And I think some athlete representation is necessary. I think we need to make sure that we're protecting the rights of college athletes. Yeah. So, so another agent. Well, I think I think that the agent reputation was exactly what this agent was pushing back against in the comment to me, like people think it's the agents yep. that are setting them up with cars and payments and taking right. care of the family, but it's whatever. And that whatever is boosters, right. whatever is people from outside these universities that give them free jobs, whatever it is. And I guess we all agree this bill and bills like it would put that out into the light. So yes, now agents would be able to ferret through whatever's setting these guys up, but it would be out from the darkness. Right. Yeah, and, and recognize that SB 206, one of the things it does is it makes it illegal to deny anyone an agent. Um, so that's there. I would argue that the reason, first of all, as a former agent, I'm sure you know, owners generally don't like agents because agents advocate for their athletes, and why would right. we want to have that? Um, but um, the reason that the college agent world is an extra level of whatever people think is bad is because all the legitimate agents are, are stay away. They get told if you come here, it'll be bad. So it's like, it's like if you outlaw something, the only people who do it are the outlaws. And, um, uh, you know, in the HBO, we're going to encourage every single one of our athletes to get an agent before he signs with us. We think that agents and even a union can be a real partner in the process of creating a sport and, and that the, the, the demonization of agents, particularly within college, is in part because it's, schools don't particularly want athletes to know all their options. Right. We're going to bring this in for a landing soon. We could go all day. This is fascinating. A couple things I want to mention, the obvious points. Number one, the NCA has a committee studying this, uh, which we should underscore all of this way before the announcement the other day in California, headed by Val Ackerman, who, of course, is uh, commissioner of the Big East Conference, which I'm part of. I'm not part of the committee. I'm part of the Big East Conference at Villanova. And, yeah, yeah. and Gene, Gene Smith uh, at Ohio State. Now, they are supposed to issue some kind of report in the fall, uh, which obviously may be impacted or may not be by what went on in California. The other part of it is... Other states, and Andy, you can probably comment much more than I can about this in play and even faster tracking 
than 2023 when the California bill takes effect. So I guess I point out those two things to say, okay, where, what now? So we have a three-year runway until California becomes uh, enacted, and you have Florida and you have other states sort of trying to get on a faster track. And Val will issue her report, I would suspect, sometime later this fall. So where we go from here as we look forward uh, at, at the uh, onset of this announcement from the governor of California, which you were part of, Andy, what's next? Oh, well, so you guys both know Darren Heitner. He is um, mm -hmm. a Florida sports attorney. He is the person that I understand is driving the Florida legislation. And um, as important as California is and as a general economic principle, we're probably, we probably underpunch on college sports these days, given the, the generally weak performance of the Pac-12 as, as our state's premier conference. But mm -hmm. if there is a rule that says that Florida has to leave the SEC or that Florida State has to leave the ACC, I'm pretty sure the SEC and the ACC are going to fight hard to prevent that rule from being enforced. And so Florida is a real game changer in terms of the NCAAs. I, I don't know how strong their we're going to boycott you is, and people have said that that might be an illegal boycott, but, but I think that they won't even dare do that if a, uh, if a football state like Florida um, uh, chimes in. Um, in our world, we think that by the time the California moratorium wears out in 2023, that we'll have several HBL seasons under our belt, and the ACC will be dying to compete with us because we've been basically out ACC and the ACC in basketball. So, like, there's mm -hmm. a two-track going on, which is, is is the, like I said before, Gavin Newsom showed that it's politically astute to get in front of this. So we're going to see pressure. And it's not just from blue states, but it's going to be more in blue states where it, it can be portrayed as a as a rights issue. Um, but we've seen in the, a, a congressman from North Carolina has pushed this on a national level, and he is, I can't, I look at his Twitter feed, and except for when he talks about college athletes, there's nothing that as a blue person, I agree with him on. But for him, this is about economic freedom. And so if that becomes the consensus, I could see this being a little like same-sex marriage where it's like nobody wanted to touch it, and all of a sudden everyone's like, wait, what are we worried about? And it could change very fast. Um, I think that'd be great for the country. From, the, from a business point of view, I hope that. I hope that the NCAA does its best to stonewall for three years to give my league time to get up and get going so that we will be part of that landscape thereafter. But if, if in the end they see the light and they – they squish us by giving athletes their rights. I, I guess I would take that as a nice silver lining. Yeah, and, and Andrew, I mean, you're right. The, the, we, we have to see what this working group comes up with. I think the expectation, uh, at least before the California law passed, was that what the NCAA did would be more of an incremental change and mm -hmm. that they have two challenges, at least, facing them. One is their historical definition of amateurism, which excludes payment for name, image, and likeness. And, and how do you come up with that shift? Um, how, do you, how do you justify that shift? And the other is they're still facing litigation. And there's still a case pending in the Ninth Circuit yeah, um, right. where they have argued that there has to be a clear line of demarcation, uh, that anything untethered from education would destroy, I mean, payment untethered from education would destroy amateurism. And so if you've seen in the statements they've made about this, they've been very careful to say any compensation we allow will have to be tethered to education. And the question is, how do you do that with name, image, and likeness? Uh, right. I, I think there are ways. 
sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Especially when specifically in the O'Bannon decision that they're relying on, it says that once you start paying them anything for the name image right. like this, the only principal stopping point is their full value. Right. And so, so the question is, how do you kind of thread that needle yeah. to be consistent with the legal arguments you've made, but also provide more rights to satisfy California and the other states? And, and that's a hard thing to do. Uh, and my argument has been, and this is what's in my white paper, is that by allowing these greater economic rights for NIL, they can strengthen their overall amateurs market. Because right now, I think the rules are more restrictive than necessary. I don't think you need to prevent athlete, college athletes from receiving compensation for a name, image, and likeness to differentiate yourself from pro sports. Um, and that's essentially the test under antitrust law. Is, are these rules reasonably necessary? So one will have to see what the NCAA working group recommends. Two will have to see what these other states do. And as Andy said, California passing the law is one thing. Florida is another thing, um, both because of the, the political leanings of the, of the state and the people in the state. Um, but also there's that, the complicating factor, as Andy mentioned, that sometimes sports trumps political views and that people are sports fans before they are liberals or conservatives, and that's the most important thing to them. Uh, and then the third thing is, if the NCAA does not go far enough to satisfy California or these other states, and California tries to enforce their law, or mm-hmm. Florida tries to enforce their law if they pass it, then I think we're very likely to see the NCAA sue to claim that these state laws are unconstitutional, because right. they interfere with interstate commerce. I think that's really ironic because what they're really doing is allowing interstate commerce that the NCAA is preventing. Well, but the argument would be that that it's not about preventing or allowing; it's that the NCAA needs uniformity and that Uniform. they are no, unlike. Right. I mean, we can have this argument. I think I think that that is a problem for them, which is that they aren't going to be able to argue that it's reducing commerce. They're going to argue that it's increasing commerce in a way that they don't like. Well, well, but it's interfering with their ability to have interstate commerce, uh, and, and their ability to do that rests on having uniform rules, is their argument. And right, so this right. is ultimately going to interfere with that commerce. Right. Allowing this smaller amount of state commerce is going to interfere with their national enterprise. Gabe, let me ask you this in terms of tethering to education, because that's a key point here. Would you, and I'm guessing Andy would not be, would you be satisfied if there is the name image likeness revenue is put in some kind of account, not held by the university, some third party account that only goes to the athlete, student athlete upon exit, whether that be graduation or exit to the pros or leaving uh, before the, the degree is finished. And I have a sense that that's where the committee's going to go with this. But your thoughts on that? I think that's better than what we have now. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's ideal. But if that's what it takes to open up this market for, for student-athletes, then, then I, I'd personally be willing to accept it. I'm not sure I see the reason to do it. I think you can tie the payments to academic performance, and you can tie it mm-hmm. to GPA. You can tie it to lots of um, academic measures to make sure that these are actually student-athletes who are in good academic standing, and so it can make it a contractual relationship between the third party and the student-athlete that doesn't involve the, the institution itself. Um, right. And so, therefore, you are incentivizing academic performance, but you're also allowing them to have the money while they're in school, which for a lot of athletes is important, uh, whether it's for themselves or for their families. So I, I think you have to have a really compelling reason to not give it to them while they're in school, and I'm not sure I've, I've heard any compelling reasons, but if that's the ultimate compromise, again, I think that's better than 
not allowing it at all. And if that's the final stumbling block, um, then, then yes, I think that's okay. But, but I, I think a better system is to, is to allow them to earn it to, while they're actually earning it. Well, I have to keep it while they're earning it. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't really go ahead, agree with what Gabe said. Um, uh, the, in the O'Bannon case, part of the antitrust process uh, in a rule of reason case is to suggest less restrictive alternatives. And right. the O'Bannon team suggested just that. Now, they didn't put a number on it. They just said right. deferred. If the issue is uh, – uh, there are people out there who will say something like, I don't think it's a good idea for a young man to have that much money. And it's it's paternalistic, but but you know we're we're all hatters of one sort or another, and um, and I understand that I don't think it's a legitimate concern, but I also understand that there are many problems with American society in terms of how we think about young black men who have money, um, mm-hmm. and I can't solve that problem. So if that's what it takes, is to say to people you're only going to get five thousand during the year, you know during the school year, and the rest is deferred. In the HBL, we're paying people salaries, but we're also encouraging them to set up 401ks to right. start the process of thinking long term. So, you know, there is the there is the the nudge way, the sort of like the, the way where you encourage people to do things and and you help them get there. And there's the must, the mandate way. And the NCA kind of always likes to pick the mandate, not the nudge. I guess I always have I also have a question about logistics and how it will work. It's not that crucial, but you know, if if Joe Furniture Company want six Alabama players for a, a signing, I guess who they're going to call is Alabama Athletics Department, where, where you know, unless, you know, these players have agents. and I, I, It just seems to me like this is going to put some burden on athletic departments where these companies, they're not, I mean, they don't know who to call to get these guys. They're not just going to see them on the street. I mean, so it almost becomes kind of a... Uh, an agency part of these athletic departments. Am I seeing that right? I mean, how are these guys going to get so to I, these players? <laughs> so I, I think there are, there are lots of different ways you could do it. I mean, one is you could have someone in the compliance office be responsible for fielding these calls. And right. again, let's, let's go back to the, to the argument that not many athletes are going to get these. Um, so is it really that big of a burden? And if lots of athletes are going to get them, and there is a lot of value here, then, I, then yes, this is going to add somewhat of a compliance burden, but I think it's also going to reduce somewhat of a compliance burden because you don't have to worry about all these silly rules that are in place right, right. now. And, and what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there are – college athletes that are asking for waivers through their athletic department, through the compliance office, to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness for non-athletic reasons, right? The ones who want to start their own business and be able to put their name on the the website um, and their picture on the website, then they get waivers for those. But that's a lot of work for the compliance office. If we change this rule, we don't have to worry about those waivers anymore because anyone can do this. Um, So then it's just shifting the burden to a, a different type of work and a type of work that allows more student athletes, college athletes to get paid. Uh, but for many of them, I think that they would have their own agent. You, you would contact the agent. And this would not be, except for at the top, top level, a particularly lucrative space for agents. Uh, right. Because if you're talking about a $5,000 to do a, an appearance at a local car dealership. Um, so I, I think you could have smaller agents doing this. You could have a 
a third-party clearinghouse. I think there's lots of different mechanisms to do it. Uh, but but I but I've, I've mentioned this before. But the same issue came up when the NCAA decided to loosen the restrictions on employment during the year for college athletes. To say, mm-hmm. you know, we think it makes sense for you to do it. And people said, well, how's that going to work? Who are the employers going to call? How are they going to find them? How do we know how much they're going to pay them? Are they going to actually be doing the work? And we figured it out. And it just became part of the regular compliance routine. And it's now just something that they do. Um, so I think you can do the same thing for, for this. But it, it's, I understand that it's scary. I understand making a change like this. It could be hard. It could lead to some complications and some, some logistical issues. But I think they're all answerable. Um, and I think it's, it's time. It's beyond time, past time. To, to stop saying, look, if we make this change, it's going to destroy college sports. Because as we yeah. all know, whether it's the NCAA or the NFL or Major League Baseball, the argument has always been the same. If we make this change, typically to allow athletes more rights, it will destroy the league, whether it's free agency, whatever it might be. And our leagues are doing better than ever. Yeah, um, I so think it's, it's hard to make changes, but, but we can do it. The prediction, the prediction of league destruction over increased athlete rights or compensation, I think, is o and infinity right now. <laughs> yeah, and I, but I also think the chances of the landscape looking today like it will look when the California bill takes effect in 2023 are nil, right? So well, something's going to be a lot different about. Sorry. Do you mean like who's good and who's bad, or do you mean like how the money flows? I mean that athletes will have more rights, and they'll have more rights yeah, probably sure. soon, and they'll have there'll be more bills, and they'll have more rights, and they'll like Gabe used the word incremental. That's going to happen. So the question is, is that going to happen enough for whatever for others to say, okay, we're satisfied with that? Probably not. And the bills are going to go a lot farther than the NCA would, and then we see, right? And then we see whether there's litigation or whatever happens. Final comments, guys. We have to wrap this up, but this has been fascinating. Uh, last word, first, you, Andy. Um, well, I think if you if you think that the athletes' rights question in this all is important, you should definitely check out hbleague.com uh, and come join us there. Um, I don't think you should be afraid that if your team is good now, they're going to be bad in a world in which athletes are paid, or if they're if they're bad, that they're suddenly going to be good because it's not going to change. Um, and the only way that it would change is if, if the NCA lets an organization like mine take all the good talent. In which case, come watch our our programs. Okay, Gabe, last word. Yeah, I'll just say quickly. I once again want to defend Tulane athletics and Tulane football, and we're on the rise this year. And, and two, uh, I, I, I just I would like people to think, and I, people tend to get entrenched in their views on anything, but particularly this issue. Uh, if you do not believe college athletes should be entitled to receive compensation for their name, image, and likeness, ask why. What what is the compelling reason? Uh, but don't start with should we change it to allow them to receive it. Why are we preventing them? And, and, and it's just hard for me to come up with really strong justifications for continuing to prevent athletes to receive what every other American essentially uh, is entitled to, and that's to receive money for the value that they've created, maybe in part with the schools, but that they have created uh, in their name, image, and likeness. Well said. Well said, and Gabe, by the way, Villanova's 5-0, and so just letting you know that. Um, <laughs> right, we'll settle this on the field. This was great with two experts, maybe the two people I wanted to have talk about this important issue with the California bill and its sponsor, Andy Schwartz, and 
one of the foremost experts on sports law, uh, someone I've known for a long time, Gabe Feldman. Thanks so much, guys, for being on the Business of Sports podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for giving us the space to really talk it through. It was great. We went deep. Hope you enjoyed it. That was a that was a really fascinating podcast. As I said, I could have talked to Andy and Gabe for hours about this, and maybe will may well have part two about it. As this issue will continue, it will only have legs as we go forward. As I've said on the podcast, a lot of runway between now and 2023. The NCA landscape, well, I think, will look a lot different, whether voluntarily or imposed upon them. Final word from Bet Online: Everything's going on right now. You got NFL, you got college, Major League Baseball playoffs, all happening. So visit our good friends, the exclusive partner of Podcast One, BetOnline.ag. Take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Promo code again, Podcast One, for your 50% sign-up bonus. The games galore this week. We got Rams in Seattle, of course, Packers and Cowboys. India, Kansas City, Cleveland at San Francisco, and, and in college, Cal at Oregon, Michigan, Ohio, Michigan State, Ohio State, Georgia, Tennessee, and of course, baseball playoffs starting with the Astros and Yankees and Dodgers and Braves. It goes on and on. So visit betonline.ag. Don't forget the promo code podcast one. Use it for your 50% sign up bonus today. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. And that'll do it for this week's extended version of the business of sports with Andrew Brandt and Andy Schwartz and Gabe Feldman. Thanks to my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal, for recording that with both of these guests. And of course, thanks to you. Any Appreciate any rankings, any comments on Apple Podcasts. Truly appreciate it. And thanks for following me on Twitter, at Andrew Brandt. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the business of sports with Andrew Brandt.